Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we want to welcome back a very special guest. Uh, today we have uh, Kirk Schneider. He's a leading spokesperson for contemporary existential humanistic and existential integrative, uh, integrative psychology. And Dr. Schneider was a 2022 candidate for president of the American Psychological Association, a co-founder and current president of the Existential Humanistic Institute, an award-winning psychotherapy training center, and a two-term member of the Council of Representatives of the APA. He's written several books, including Existential Humanistic Therapy, Depolarizing America, The Spirituality of Awe, and his newest book, available on February 1st, is called Life Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane World. Welcome back, Kirk. Thank you for coming on. Uh, it's great to be here with with both of you. Thank you. Absolutely. And I want to first off shout out the fact that this is your third time on our show, which is really excellent because we've only had about, I think, a handful of three-time guests. So I think you're number five. I think you are the fifth ever third-time guest. So it's really awesome to have you back. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as we, as we, as we usually start out, we start out with a quote. And in this case, I'm going to read a quote from Kurt's newest book, Life Enhancing Anxiety. So Kurt wrote, we humans need to get our act together concerning anxiety. Our attempts to block anxiety, pretend it doesn't exist, or propel ourselves in the opposite direction have been a disaster, and we're continuing to perpetuate that disaster now. Just think about how many problems anxiety denial has brought us. Tyrannical leaders, imperious states, remorseless bigots, hateful ideologues, merciless financial moguls, soulless intellects, reckless industrialists, robotic bureaucrats, heartless abusers, and mindless addicts. In fact, all who have pursued the quick fix, instant results approach to living, to living bear this legacy and, of course, that includes every one of us at one time or another. Think, for example, how many of us have been attracted to the simplistic and expedient, whether through petty squabbles, crass commercialism, fast food, speedy internet, smart TVs, ingenious phones, pills, apps, sports, sports channels, slogans, fashion, hero worship, or guns. But is it, strikingly a matter, but is it, but it is strikingly a matter of degree, is it not? So mm -hmm. I love that. And I want to kind of, as we begin, I want to start to differentiate between the different forms of anxiety. So, mm -hmm. you know, clinically speaking, I think all of us know this, especially even in popular culture, that, you know, most of the time anxiety is viewed as something to be subdued, subjugated, to be kind of medicated away. Uh, one could go to therapy for it. Obviously, in some ways, if you're talking about quick fixes, you know, it's mm -hmm. easy to start binge watching television shows, binge eating food. You know, there are kind of so many different remedies for it. So can we first start by differentiating between what that type of anxiety is like like you know the clinical version of it and then your version of it which you obviously call life enhancing anxiety and how did the two if they do kind of tie into one another and even feed off of each other in a way yeah well i i see it all on a spectrum a spectrum of intensity so what we would call clinical anxiety is is often anxiety that's that's more intense and when I say anxiety, I mean basically fear of the unknown, mm -hmm. terror of the unknown. Uh, so clinical anxiety is such terror of the unknown, and, and I've had it myself. I mean, I'm sure I could have been labeled that uh, many years ago, uh, is, is an intense terror of the unpredictable, the the uncertain, um, I think it's it's often associated with uh, death anxiety. It certainly was for me. <laughs> uh, what I the way I translate death anxiety is is a sense of a primal sense of groundlessness and helplessness. And and that feeling 
comes up often through psychological trauma. Um, it can come up through loss, illness. You know, there are many ways where, where we can we could feel uh, like the bottom has dropped out and, and we're just floundering. We're, we're grasping and, and we're in a free fall kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, so, so that free fall is particularly intense in, in clinical anxiety to, to the point where uh, many would call it irrational, mm. irrational anxiety. So a uh, terror of a spider, uh, terror of somebody from a different country, or just a terror of some somebody or something that's different. Mm -hmm. And that paralyzes one. Um and we can go into this later, but I, I do trace a lot of this terror back to uh, the, what Otto Rank would call the trauma of birth. Mm -hmm. I think we all experience it at, at a certain point, at that point where we're thrown into the, the world. Um, but it's a question of how that's handled by the caretakers and by the culture that one enters into. And... Uh, the degree of trauma that takes us back into that place of groundlessness and helplessness, and of course, how that's handled. Uh, but clinical anxiety is, is often uh, un, untreated anxiety, if you will. Uh, for me, it had a lot to do with or the death of my brother, which I, I think I have talked about on, on your show before at a very yeah, young age. Yeah, and please, actually, I was going to ask you to go into it a little bit today, too. So, I mean, we did focus on that a little bit, but it wasn't in any depth. And I actually appreciate the experiences that you had with your early psychoanalysts, too. So, you know, as we're kind of defining yeah. anxiety and differentiating the two, yeah, please, if you want to use this as an example to connect the two, go ahead. Right. So uh, I, I would say that I, I had that extreme clinical anxiety, the sense of overwhelm, uh, probably up to when I was about six years old. Um, my brother died when I was about two and a half, and he was seven, and I went into a tailspin between two and a half and six years old, roughly the time that my mother, in her wisdom, referred me to a child analyst. And I'm sure that he was extremely help, helpful to me in, in kind of moving me from a place of clinical anxiety, abject terror and paralysis, absolute terror of death and dying, of germs, of the unknown. Uh, I, I had... Uh, night terrors, uh, you know, visions of being attacked, monsters, especially mm -hmm. as a kid's mind will, you know. Right. And, and that would be, and that would be the basic clinical phobias. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's a point where one is like walking around the world uh, with, with a, a constant startle response and, and, and being on the edge of panic or in panic. Uh, and and having a, a great uh, difficulty coping, mm -hmm. coping with uh, everyday you know practical activities because of the degree of 
of tension, of nervousness. And and again, primal fear that, mm. that one will not be able to handle it. I mean, frankly, it's it's like being on the edge of insanity, I think. I mean, that that's that was my sense of it. That uh I I, I was I was gonna be lost. And and actually my father, who was a humanistic educator, uh was a, a middle school teacher at the time actually took notes on me because he was afraid that I, I was losing touch with, with reality in some ways. I, I was crying constantly. I was enraged. Uh, I, I was out of control in, in a lot of ways uh, for, for a little kid. And what my psychoanalyst did, I think, uh, uh, you know, in terms of what, what really stood out was he, he helped me to move incrementally from a place of abject terror and paralysis in many ways to gradual incremental curiosity about my situation because he would ask me questions mm -hmm. about what was going on for me and I would be probing more about it and realizing as I'm inquiring, as I'm looking at my struggle seeing more aspects to it that maybe it's not quite as harrowing as i at first thought you know he's not as scary as i thought my mother is not as scary i, I did have some profound fears and i go into that in the book of my mother which i, I think is understandable uh, with her being so connected to my my brother and he was the firstborn and and uh, we we had, I, I think she had a great deal of difficulty, especially in the early stages, even relating to me. She had to get away for a period of time. I don't at all want to reduce it to that because she was a wonderful mother, you know, overall. And she, she really did her best to, to raise me. But there, there was some, uh, you know, great... Uh, uh, sort of gaps in my experience. Uh, and so, so he helped me to gradually begin to maybe even be intrigued with some of the profound issues that I was faced with. Hmm. I've often said that I, I, I didn't really experience a midlife crisis because I feel like I experienced it when I was two and a half years old, <laughs> which may seem very strange. But uh, I don't think Jung is always right that we experience it at middle age. Mm -hmm. Those of us who are traumatized very early encounter these big questions about life and death and what's what's this all about? And mm -hmm. how do I live? How do I survive uh, with some degree of, of coherence and, and meaning? And, and even joy, you know, asking these questions at a young age. And, and I think his presence, especially, his seasoned way of relating to me and my sense that he had been through a lot himself, but he still had a bit of a sense of humor. He, he obviously survived a lot that he had gone through. He was caring with me. He, he, he really tuned in to me. Um, and 
and he, he gave me a space to feel free or freer to go area, anywhere I needed to go and, and yet feel supported. So I, I think all of that helped me to move more toward what, what I'm calling in the, in the book, uh, life enhancing anxiety, you know, the, the bigger picture of anxiety that, that can, that can actually be a gateway to healing and liberation and not just constraint and dread. Yeah. And, and what happened with you in contrast to what many people in society do, which is, you know, sort of look for either a quick fix or uh, repress or suppress um, their emotions that they, they look to. Uh, they either have drug-seeking behavior or uh, maybe they're prescribed something that sort of dulls the senses. In some critical cases, those things can be incredibly helpful. Uh, don't get me wrong, but um, there are many cases where it, it's not. It keeps somebody from sort of facing what it is, the, you know, those primordial emotions, so to speak. And what happened with you, which is very interesting to me, is that you know through the process of inquiry, through the process of rapport building um, with your therapist, um, he actually got you to sort of engage with those with those feelings and and move from a place where it's like oh uh, everything's sort of out of control like I'm I'm at the effect of everything, whereas opposed to when you started to question the things that you were going through or not question or sort of just sort of answer his questions and get you thinking about what it is that you're feeling. It brought you to this place where you could sort of make sense of, of the mystery, mystery sort of, so to speak, but then also move also even further to a place where you could be comfortable um, with embracing mystery, uh, which many of us aren't, uh, which I find very interesting, you know? Right. And Kirk, and what, was, Go ahead. What, what was it about his presence that made you able to kind of hold those somewhat, you know, seemingly negative emotions? Because for, again, for many of us, as Alan said, and, you know, as we've been saying that we want to kind of run away from them. So what was it about the therapy itself that made you feel like, okay, you know, I can kind of be in this space with them and I can tolerate these? Well, I, again, I think, I think it had a lot to do with my sense that he was a very seasoned and present person himself that he he was he was okay with the the you know the great uh storms uh the ups and downs of what i was going through when i say he's okay he he stayed relatively centered mm -hmm. um you know relatively uh supple uh, in, in that process. And I think as a model, he, he was a great model for me uh, as someone who uh, who could not only withstand the storms of, of these great fears, but, but who was thriving in significant ways. I mean, he's obviously a very authoritative and accomplished person too. And and I, I wouldn't say just him. It was my second existential analyst when I was in graduate school. Anne. Who may have been equally important and maybe even more important. I'm was sorry? that Anne? Was that Anne? Yes, that was Anne. And I talk about Anne in the book. She was wonderful, uh, powerful, powerful, uh, strong, humorous, uh, radically open to 
whatever I wanted to explore, including very much with her. Mm -hmm. you know, so, and, and the fact that she was a woman helped me to explore more about my own anxieties, challenges with my mother, you know, and some of the primal fears I had uh, around abandonment and uh, well, and then when did you start yeah. making that shift in terms of the, your perspective of anxiety? When did you start viewing it or stop viewing it as something to be medicated away or to be avoided as opposed to now something that can be enhancing in terms of your life? Uh, you know, if, we, if you want to kind of conceptualize it as post-traumatic growth, obviously that's kind of a more recent term. But when did you start seeing it as something that could actually be kind of fostered and cultivated in a way to help you? Well, it took a long time to to really come into that place fully. I, I, I think I, I felt the seeds of that after my early analysis at six years old and beginning to become intrigued with the science fiction shows. I've talked about that with you in the past, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, peculiar states of mind and peculiar creatures and uh, strange places. Miss the mysteries mm -hmm. of life that these shows uh, portrayed in in fuller dimensions than just as as scary creatures. They they often had a wisdom to them or insights. In other words, I was gradually seeing the more hmm. of what initially just seemed like a catastrophe, uh, and and coming into places that looked like groundlessness and helplessness at first but on the flip side of that we're, we're also uh, great ranges to explore and and to grow in and and through and i think it began to you know turn me on to the arts and humanities i was very interested in creative writing i did a lot of creative stuff around tapes uh, stories with my my dad and and uh, the toys I had and uh, made up my own stories, but eventually uh, found psychology, putting a lot of that together. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, fascination with that. Um, yeah, and, and I think because so Alan is more of a fan of this than I am, but I think we can agree that in terms of horror films, it's sort of a way to us kind of project our anxiety onto the screen just to see, I guess, in some ways to see what it's like or to simulate it. Like, I know, Alan, you love this stuff. Is that the sense you get? I don't know where you got that. I love horror. Films you don't. <laughs> I love fantasy. I, I love, you know, um, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I definitely uh, movies like um, The Fountain or really cerebral movies have have spoken to me. Uh, Mr. Nobody, you know, uh, things like that. But horror i mean i'm off i'm uh, off yeah because i figured because of the sci-fi stuff they usually go hand in hand people who love sci-fi love horror at the same time it depends you know it has a time and, and place as far as that goes i i've liked horror movies before is it, i wouldn't say it's my thing but sorry but what point were you sort of yeah, yeah so, okay, and uh, let me just now get into uh what i was going to ask kirk then so kirk do you kind of sense that that's sort of what we're doing in some way so if we're thinking about uh life enhancing anxiety obviously we're not going to you know find ourselves in many of the uh kind of situations or simulations of a horror film but can we say that in a way that's for us a way to get kind of comfortable with existential anxiety because yeah. if we're thinking about right if we're thinking about horror films i mean essentially we're dealing with topics that we don't normally think about so you know death 
uh, obviously kind of the fear of being harmed and pain, uh, the fear of kind of groundlessness in the sense yeah. of like, if you look at something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, there's not really a blueprint for how these people can escape the house. They just have to kind of figure it out themselves, right? So you find right. these existential themes in horror films. Oh, absolutely. And I wrote a book about horror in the holy, wisdom yeah. teachings of the monster tale. So I explored yeah. those existential themes. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I tend to identify more with what I call classic horror books and films rather than the, the kind of slice and dice films. But those have that element of mystery as well. But uh, when I say classic horror books and films, I'm talking about what H.P. Lovecraft calls cosmic fear. Mm -hmm. I think uh, stories like Frankenstein and Dracula uh, bring that up, these these deeper, profound existential questions about extension of life, uh, you know, uh, the, the field of the mind, uh, you know, p potential ways that we can evolve as, as beings or not, you know, cautionary tales. Um, but I, I did want to say one other thing about what I went through as distinct from what uh, many people, many young kids today would likely go through, and I would have likely gone through if I had this experience today or the last several years. Uh, first of all, I would probably be bombarded with, with drugs. Uh, I, I would pr probably seeing an analyst or a depth therapist would be seen as an extreme luxury are quite unusual for many, many children today. And, and maybe to even many professionals it would be seen as being off track. Why would you put a kid through such, you know, torment and struggle and, and pain when, when we could give them, you know, a mood stabilizer or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, some kind of, uh, yeah, an antidepressant to help anti-anxiety uh, or, or just a, a quicker remedy, you know, to, to, to work with them. So I think that's a really important piece in terms of how we're handling anxiety today and also the potential cost of that. Um, but when we're talking about life enhancing anxiety, I think we're moving more toward that. So, the question for me is is really how do we cultivate greater presence to that which is radically other and different in our experience? And again, I trace that back to what we all experience at birth. I wouldn't call it the trauma of birth as Ronk does. I call it the drama of birth because I don't think birth is just a trauma. There are very strong traumatic elements mm -hmm. move from a state of relative non-being and unity to sudden abrupt being and disunity mm -hmm. pandemonium you know what the kid comes into all kinds of blooming uh, buzzing blooming world of confusion <laughs> right mm -hmm. I mean, so that that is primarily horrifying but also, what I, I sense happens at birth are elements of, of wonder and discovery. And I, I certainly felt that presiding at the birth of my son. But I, 
you know, this is obviously a, a tough issue for all of us to go back to what was it actually like? But we do have a lot of indication that it was extremely stressful. And, you know, studies have indicated that too. The stress hormones that are released are, are much higher than even severe adult stress hormones. Right. Um, and then and then we have all the studies of uh, how quickly kids deteriorate when, let's say, the, their mother uh, has a still face. It's called the still face experiments. And they've done that as much as a couple of hours after birth. Mm -hmm. So when there's nobody there to really meet the child and to hold them, to create a holding environment where they can begin to kind of sink into all that radical terror of difference, of otherness, other things, people, places, stranger anxiety, it's also called. Mm -hmm. They don't have that, that mirroring, that connection, that resonance from the caretaker and from the culture. If they're coming from a fear-based place, then it just sets things off from the beginning on, on a problematic track and disposes people toward extremes. Yeah, and so what I love is that when we kind of now differentiate between the various forms of unconscious, uh, you, you, as you're starting out in terms of, let's say, the birth or the kind of the birth experience and the distinction between, and this is kind of very polar, where you have to distinguish between non-being and being, I love that what you're doing here is so different from Freud and so different from what we're used to in terms of the unconscious. So we're used to thinking about the unconscious as sort of these kind of infantile drives or desires where, you know, you're fundamentally kind of suppressing them. That's sort of what the ego is all about. Or the super ego and then the ego is essentially managing between the two but what you think what you think about it when you kind of consider is so much more fundamental so we're talking about an existential unconscious which is a little bit different from young and it's different from the collective unconscious which is a bunch of archetypes that essentially are kind of let's say fundamentally within all of us in terms of like some sort of basis but you're mm -hmm. talking about an existential unconscious which is essentially saying that this is all of life that this these are the parts of life that fundamentally we're coming more and more into contact with and more and more into awareness of but it's it's terrifying it's incredibly scary and the, i like that you link the two together so there's life-changing or kind of life enhancing anxiety and then there's the existential unconscious so uh i don't want to kind of get into this too much because i want you to define it kirk so can you tell us what the existential unconscious is and how do we confront it and if we can confront it on a daily basis yes and just to respond to your notion of i mean you're mentioning the existential unconscious yes i i think that's an exciting sort of new perspective for depth psychotherapy psychology to look at our relationship to existence to the cosmos not not only to you know the parental system or the cultural system or our drives etc uh, yeah that, that feels like bedrock in, in a lot of ways so my definition I have several definitions of life enhancing anxiety more formally, I would define it as that, that which enables us to live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence. So it's that degree of anxiety that helps us to live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence. Mm -hmm. And here you could bring horror films in too. I mean, bring that, that element of mystery or any suspense mystery, mysterious film, 
uh, or that brings that element and great films often do. Um, how do we find our way in it? Um, can we can we find the richness of of engaging with with the, that dimension? Um, less formally, uh, maybe more practically speaking, I, I would define it as that degree of invigorating anxiety that includes not only apprehension and constraint, but also elements of wonder and discovery. Mm. We often equate uh, anxiety with the apprehension and constraint, nervousness, but we don't in, in our culture often see it in its multidimensionality of, of being potentially a, a gateway to a larger experience of living. I mean, Rollo May talks about it beautifully in Freedom and Destiny, uh, where he talks about uh, freedom, freedom and anxiety are two sides of the coin. Uh, you don't have one without the other. Mm. Um, it's basically what he's, what I understand he's saying is that anxiety can be a signal that we're on the edge of discovery. We're on the edge of something, again, that's radically unknown, that's radically different, other. And the question is, can we be present enough to that moment to begin to come into that otherness, explore it, and see what it holds for us. So life-enhancing anxiety, uh, as I elaborate in the book, I believe can, can really help us uh, to achieve uh, greater states of ethical attunement, mm -hmm. bridge building, bridge building among cultures, um, a creative richness opens up our capacity to play, to uh, to be creative, uh, to experience novel ideas, feelings, sensations, etc., and begin to apply them in our our lives. And um, also can foster uh, a greater, I, I think, interpersonal engagement, enable us to become more intimate mm -hmm. with each other, because intimacy certainly can imply a great deal of mystery and, and difference, otherness, and, and also uh, potentially can uh, foster greater uh, spiritual fulfillment. Terms of our relationship to all that is to the cosmos, mm -hmm. and you know I have that whole chapter on on, on everyday spirituality, yeah. sense of yeah. awe. What's interesting is uh, when I when I think about this, if I had to think about this in my own sort of personal experience, right? Any time that I've actually sort of uh, faced a fear, or actually first, if I had to think about the process, uh, first there comes the the feeling of fear and then this sort of impulse to want to sort of shrink back and not necessarily 
I, I almost want to avoid uh, doing the the action. And then there's something in me that let's pretend that I'm actually facing the fear. There's something in me that wants to, how should I put this? Um, well, there are a lot of other processes kind of going on at the same time. For instance, I already have some intellectual background knowledge where it's like, oh, this is, this is the ego, you know, it's kind of holding you in place, right? This is, this is the false self. This is essentially something that's not you, that's keeping you constrained and keeping you from sort of expanding and, and going beyond your uh, imagined limits, right? So I personally, I, I have this sort of intuitive sense that I don't want to go with that path. I don't want to actually shrink back. I don't want to limit myself. I'd also prefer as much as possible to be authentic, right? It, it, which I know is a lofty sort of a, a term, but but in, in in reality, though, that's that's the sense I get. So that kind of helps me to then get a little bit of uh, maybe not even courage right away. It depends how fearful I am. If I'm incredibly fearful about something, I might actually think about it for quite a long time before even taking the action. I might even have to, depending exactly how fearful I am, maybe even go through emotions of like uh, anger, pride, and then eventually get to courage where I might then take the action I need to take. Uh, but but essentially what I want to say is that um, what you're talking about, it does remind me of any time that I've, I've sort of tried to face my fears. And then any times that I've actually done that, I've seen sort of the other side of it, like this, this possibility for, for instance, oh, I, I told that uh, girl that I was uh, in love with, you know, how I felt about her. And I, yes, I was scared. I almost didn't do it. I thought of a million reasons not to do it. But then I did it. And then it led to us, you know, uh, getting together and, and so on. Right. Yeah. And if I didn't do it, then I would have closed myself off to a whole field of possibility to sure. connection. Right. And, um, and, and fulfillment. And it's, it's very interesting to see what happens when you can actually sort of uh, engage with that anxiety and, even if it takes you some time not to be discouraged by it, but try not to essentially uh, shrink back from it. Um, ultimately, uh, it, it depends how much fear you have, but but facing it, it it's so rewarding, essentially. Right. And, and Kirk, and just because uh, I want to kind of add on to that a little bit and ask a question. So, so that makes me now start thinking about uh, these kind of like, let's say broad strokes, right? These broad based ideas. Now we're talking existentially, uh, the things that most of us are afraid of, well, let's say intimacy, like Alan pretty much just mentioned, we're afraid of intimacy, rejection, adventure, even, uh, you know, heartache, pain, suffering. Would you say that uh, these kind of constructs are what the collective, well, not the collective, because I mean, that's more of a Jungian term, but let's say it's still kind of collective, the collective sort of existential unconscious. What does that comprise of? Is it those elements? Which elements are you referring right, to? Right. So we're talking about, let's say, the fear of intimacy, the fear of adventure, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the fear of risk taking, the fear of, you know, going to the other side, let's say, crossing kind of the proverbial river and seeing what's on well, the other end. Yeah. I, I believe so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, my life and my professional experience tell me that what Otto Rank calls urangst, that, that primal, uh, severance mm. again from relative 
non-being or quiescence and unity to sudden abrupt being and pandemonium, uh, sort of shadows forth or looms behind and beneath uh, just about everything that drives us toward uh, what I'd call the polarized mind, which is the fixation on single points of view to the utter exclusion of competing points of view. Mm-hmm. That That's a very broad-based notion, which can cover everything from tyrannical leaders to uh, people kind of skimming skimming over, uh, you know, deeper encounters in life, like you were talking about earlier, Al. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, staying on the surfaces of things. I, I do think that it has a lot to do with uh, many of us not having available people, helpful witnesses, Alice Miller put it that way, helpful witnesses like depth therapists or maybe even caring neighbors or mentors who have gone through, traveled this rather challenging road themselves mm-hmm. and can offer a model of uh, how one can be present, can survive, and and even thrive in those places that we generally have a reflex against or against going to, you know. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I do think, uh, to your question, Liana, I, I think that... Basically, that's that's the nub of it, at least for for many of us. Not not everybody has a desire or capacity to 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 encounter that degree of primal anxiety that may be driving them to the extreme behavior, if you want to call it that, polarized behavior. But for many people, until they can move into that intensive place. They're, they're encountering that radical otherness in themselves and between themselves and the world, that they're not likely to be able to make fundamental and enduring shifts, I believe, in their lives. Right. And again, there are many way, many paths toward that. I mean, meditation could be another, and even the, the artistic path could mm-hmm. be... Uh, I, I love that. I, I love that so much because uh, oftentimes existentialism is uh, represented as kind of like a form of uh, rugged individualism. So we tend uh, to think of yeah. yeah, right. So we tend to think of the existential, you know, being or man or however, as somebody who's sort of uh, fully endowed and fully in charge of themselves, and they don't necessarily need anybody. And the kind of the world is sort of beckoning to them, and they kind of say, "Oh, we don't care. I don't care about you. I can take care of myself. I don't need you." So, but what you say is essentially that we fundamentally need people. And that kind of makes me think about even this podcast and the way that Alan and I feed off of each other. So uh, so I talked about this before. It's not something I ever mentioned on the show, but uh, we talked about it in private. So even though I've done episodes before on my own with people, I mean, Alan's been on guests, I guess he had guest appearances on other people's shows. Uh, So this is just my perspective. It's not necessarily his. So even though I've done episodes with people one-on-one, I've always said that it felt like something was fundamentally missing in those episodes. 
the guests were wonderful. They were really great. I had great conversations with people, but it just, it wasn't the same, you know? So I remember telling Alan, I said, if I ever have to do this podcast on my own, I think I would just stop doing it. It's just, it's not, it doesn't feel the same. It's not as fun anymore. And it's I feel like- a friendship. Right, right. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of what we do here is we kind of feed off of each other. And so not only just in terms of the praise and obviously, you know, the good parts, like the compliments and whatnot, and, you know, the laughter and the fun and all of that is great, but also even in terms of the critical feedback that we give one another. And I love, again, that when you're thinking existential, you know, again, we're thinking about it in terms of isolation, usually like, oh, there's this unbridgeable gap between you and I, and we're fundamentally alone. And you kind of say, yeah, sure, that's true. But then there's this other deeper part that you have to also focus on. Sure, there's an unbridgeable gap, but we really need each other. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I, I, I call it finding ground within groundlessness. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that ground is or can be so sacred, uh, that, that bridge, um, and, and fulfilling. Um, I, I, just, I just think of, well, some of the patience that I've had and even in my own life when when we've come to a place of feeling really connected with each other or within ourselves um, there's few you know greater greater places or feelings mm -hmm. I think that one can have and yeah, this is a uh... Apologies, Leon. Uh, but out of curiosity, I mean, something I'm wondering about. Um, so the thing is that a lot of people tend to try to, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, sort of um, repress the emotions that they may feel by looking to some sort of stimuli, right? Whether it be drugs or something, maybe they're prescribed, which is some of the things we've discussed. But what's interesting to me is that uh, you could argue that you know, other stimuli like like social media, for instance, right? Like uh, constantly watching videos, right? If if you're bored, you don't necessarily sit with that boredom, right? And and uh, try to pursue maybe something that you know would be more purposeful uh, or something that's just higher uh, for for you, whatever that would be. Uh, you sort of just look to that next stimulus just to satisfy this. Uh, craving for uh, essentially more dopamine or just just some kind of entertainment. Um, do do you think that if people maybe try to sort of distance themselves also from how much uh, they they consume essentially, whether it be social media or uh, food or or drugs that can sort of help bring them to that place where they can actually sit and and sort of be with their anxiety? Um, yeah, I was wondering your thoughts on that. Like, like how how we can help people to sit with that anxiety? Yeah, be, because essentially, I mean, um, because here's the thing. I mean, if somebody, for for instance, uh, just automatically goes to their their phone, you know, uh, when they're when they're uh, bored and they don't they don't necessarily have something they have to do. It's just sort of just to satisfy this right. this feeling of 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 lack, or they just want some sort of entertainment. Uh, entertainment's great and all, of course. Yes, but I want to mention that too. That I think that sure it's wonderful to have times where one is zoning out. I like watching games. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so yes, there, there's a sort of a, a balance there, of course, exactly. of course, and and there's a value to it, and things that you can learn from, whether it be video games or 
watching those videos on on your phone or watching uh like sports but um but but there's a certain uh, level to it where somebody just kind of does it just to yeah. satisfy sort of that need and i wonder if sort of stepping away from that would help them sort of feel these feelings that they you know may not be uh, yeah, in de- tune with dealing with the terror of boredom essentially yeah no i i think abs- absolutely i mean what, what 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 i believe we're talking about here is the difference between a kind of mindful approach to uh, distractions if you will yeah. entertainments where where one is recognizing that one is you know enjoying this time of zoning out or you know being distracted or maybe even using it as a, a time to regroup after sure. a stressful you know day uh so there's a distinction between that and compulsively engaging in the action like addictions, mm-hmm. reflexively uh, conditioned, like a conditioned resp- reaction, response, reaction, basically machine-like. So one way to work with that, if one's willing and able, is to simply uh, make, make it, set your intentions to stop yourself for even a few moments from going to that television or going to that computer and take a couple of, of breaths and just pause for a moment and check and check in, check in with, okay, how am I doing? What's going on here? What am I feeling? What am I sensing, thinking, imagining, excuse me. Um, if 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 one does that even a few times it could be a very enriching uh, discovery you know a, a discovery experience absolutely yeah, and I think when you're thinking about it, when we're talking is essentially about kind of cultivating or creating meaning. It's not the same thing as compulsive meaning where we're sort of um, we're preoccupied with productivity, because I think a lot of times that people misconstrue the two or they kind of conflate the two and they misconstrue what existential meaning is. So a lot of times, like with my patients, they would say something like, well, you know, I'm doing something meaningful. So, yes, I'm afraid of boredom, but that's great, because if I weren't afraid of boredom, I wouldn't be doing all of these other things. And I think that's so different because to say that one is just checking something off a list is not the same thing as having some overarching goal or overarching value that you're fighting or maybe not fighting but at least that you're working toward and again a lot of times what happens is people think just because i'm being productive it's the same thing as doing something meaningful and i think you would disagree kirk that those two aren't necessarily the same things oh very much right. very much I, I'm, I resonate with what what you're saying but, but it's so seductive out there today because we have so many commercial products that advertise that they're meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. We have we have all these, uh, you know, toys and games and uh, devices that, uh, at one level, you know, they captivate us, they, they stimulate us, like you were saying before. They activate the dopamine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they can kind of give us the illusion that 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 that's uh, meaningful. That's you know. Uh, a kind of maybe joyful experience. 
and and maybe it is at times. I I, I don't want to not playing God here and imposing all this on one's individual experience, but too often I believe we see that it's it's illusory and that it's uh, it's a it's kind of a thin milk. It's and in the long run. Um, it's the kind of thing that can lead to the, the the kind of skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, addictions, um, you know, obsess, obsession, compulsions that that we see in the culture. Yep. Uh, yep. Or or the the I I, I think the over identifications with. Uh, certain ideologies. I mean, ideologies in our cultures have almost become like religions, yeah. fanaticisms, the vicarious living through through ideologues. Uh, you know, especially ones who seem to promise the moon, right? Instant answers with a capital A. Right. So what you're saying, Dangerous. I think. Right. So what you're saying, I think, is that there's a sort of uh, this profound fear that exists for all of us outside of, let's say, specific anxieties. Again, when we're thinking about it in terms of intimacy, death, uh, kind of, you know, taking risks and venturing out into other parts of the world. Um, so what I love is now kind of as we're getting through the book, now we're going into something called existential psychotherapy. So I want to kind of read a passage first and then I want to ask you a question. So Kurt writes, psychologists today talk until they're blue in the face about path formulas and program programmatic treatments. They can cite chemical imbalances in the brain, for example, or the lack of ability to regulate emotions, or the irrationality of conditioned thoughts as the basis for, the, for our disorders. However, until psychologists get down to the fundamental problem that fuels all of these secondary conditions, our precariousness as creatures, they will be operating at a very restrictive level. The work I did with Janice had elements of this very restrictive level, and that was important, important work to accomplish. However, there are questions that need to continually be raised. Is helping a person to change behavior patterns and recondition thoughts enough? Or do we owe it to that person to make available a deeper dimension of self-exploration? Do mm -hmm. we owe it to that person to enable discovery of what really matters about his or her life, wherever that may lead? So that's that's terrifying, you know, because when we're thinking about something, especially like psychotherapy, it seems like it should be formulaic, because if we're thinking about somebody who's an expert, we're thinking, well, I'm coming to you for you to tell me what to do. I'm coming for ideas and I'm coming for, you know, for your wisdom, essentially. This is what I'm paying for. This is what my insurance is paying for. Uh, so it's kind of frightening to go into and let's say seeing somebody who would be classified to one extent or another as an, let's say, existential psychotherapist. Obviously, according to Yalom, it's not its own field, but I'll just use the term. And so it's kind of scary to come in and for that person to say, well, I can't really give you the answers, but what I can do is I can ask you the questions and I could kind of help you on this road and kind of join you on it. So for you, Kirk, what does that look like sitting with existential therapy or in existential therapy with an existential therapist? Because I assume, you know, all of those fears of uncertainty, they just pretty much pop up and kind of smack you in the face while you're there. Yeah. And it's, and it's very understandable that people are looking to get rid of their pain. Yeah. I mean, it's basic. It's understandable. And especially in today's quick fix instant result world right. they have a disposition to do that too and and that's what what's expected often um i i really feel that the way a therapist engages with the client can make a big difference in terms of whether that client continues to have that mindset of i just want you to fix me patch me up or give me the the answer through the formula or the, the pill 
as distinct from uh, wait, he he or she is inviting me into an exploration that I didn't think about before. There's some some questions here uh, that uh, maybe I haven't I haven't realized and that would be more more central to my problems to my life than than just getting that that quick answer or the maybe the you know eight to twelve sessions something something's opening up here about how do I really want to live my life uh, in fact I, I I think that's one one of the two basic questions that are being posed throughout existential therapy good existential therapy one is how is one presently living mm. and co-creating a space for one to begin to look at that how are you presently living what are you what's emerging and what's blocking you from what's emerging and then the follow-up from that the natural follow-up from that is how how are you willing to live given how you're presently living and of course, there there's a whole range of ways that that those questions can be addressed. Um, they could be addressed at a more programmatic or behavioral level, physiological level. I'm living this way, and I'm willing to live this way. You know, with that behavioral conditioning that you gave me and. I can now go back to my job. I function like I did before, and that's all right. Uh, all the way to, man, I am really, I am so off. My my life is 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 a a horror. It's a mess, and mm. I, I can't keep living this way. Uh, you know what really matters to me is to is to pursue that project that I've had in mind since I was a kid or that relationship that's so important to me um, that I, I keep tucking away. Uh, so I, I do try to take what I call an existential integrative approach to my work with clients because I don't believe that everybody has the desire and capacity to go to those deeper places. However, that said, I think a lot more people have that desire and capacity than is generally realized because of the way conventional practitioners meet their clients. If you meet your client as if you are, you know, the authority with the black bag of answers that you're going to give to the client, and basically become the agent for the client's agency in many ways. And that and and the client is desperate for that, uh, then the likelihood is that the client will will strongly identify with that, will will grab onto that and and go with it and and maybe not even think beyond it. Mm-hmm. But the, the great tragedy is that they may well have been gravely shortchanged because they didn't 
they didn't face, engage with what Yalom calls a, a fellow traveler, the idea of someone who's relating more authentically to them and more in a more more vulnerable way and, and a more more of a way of yeah you you got a lot going on here I feel it uh, I I really I, I I'm available to you I'm available to you to to explore it to go further into it yes I, I can I can help you with the immediate I'll do my best to, to help you you know, get through the next few days, get through the next few nights. But it's it's it has to do with conveying a certain attitude. It's, it's not only with the words that the therapist says, but it's a, it's a kind of attitude that makes available something more, something deeper, uh, something more intimate. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a feeling you have about a person that yeah, I could really I could really talk to this this guy, you know, I. And I, I almost feel disarmed with that person there. And that's a powerful feeling. There's something really important that's emerging here that I, that I, I got I to gotta check out. But so many people don't even have that because we, that's not how we train clinicians more and more. Mm-hmm. We train, more, uh, train them more technically or in according to manuals or protocols. Right. And in terms of the way a business model works, I mean, you want to be seen yes. as the authority or the expert because essentially, I mean, you're keeping clients coming. So usually vulnerability, and I mean, I've had this experience too with people before. Vulnerability isn't always very becoming. Some people appreciate it and some people are like, ah, oh, wait, right. dude, like you get paid for this? Yep. That's right. That's why I say make it available to the client, mm-hmm. not impose it. Yeah. But making it available has a lot to do with your presence. Mm-hmm how you're holding and and illuminating what what is what is coming up mm-hmm. uh, and and that presence can also tune the therapist into how hopefully how best to relate to this person at this given moment mm-hmm. and it may not at all be uh, about exploration you know they they may the therapist might have that availability and and that can come across to the person, but they both realize very quickly that that's that's not the route that they need to go at this moment. Maybe they need medication right now uh, after some you know substantive discussion about what that would mean. You know, something to get them through the night, right. get them through the week, a shelter maybe. They're being beaten. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not a, a, a dogmatist around you know emphasizing the exploratory per se. I do think we need a lot more of it and needed a lot more available throughout our culture in a whole range of settings, you know, from the, the setting, the child rearing setting and the fam- the household setting to the educational setting, to the work setting, to even the governmental setting. I do believe we need m- many more spaces for people to explore, to dialogue engage in dialogue uh, no for de- real but, i'm with you i'm with you 100 right we need we definitely need more of that exploration uh, in fact as you were speaking before before uh uh, uh leon um spoke uh 
yeah there's different levels of communication right the surface level and 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 you could get somewhat deep with somebody but to get to that level where uh kind of how you're describing you're saying like i'm essentially i'm i'm here for you if 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 you really need anything from me please uh no judgment at all let me know what's what's bothering you or what's going on and uh, let's try to work through it you know i'll be here to to listen to everything you have to say to me uh please you know go for it and then you're just there as a sort of this witnessing uh presence essentially and then they they really feel heard by you and then maybe um if you have enough rapport with them depending where they're at then after they say what they say maybe you can then give your piece what what you think about it and maybe they'll actually work with it and um there's actual real hope there from from that level of connection um, yes. the sur the surface stuff i mean of course yeah you could give somebody uh i mean there's different you could give them tactics you could give them uh things they can do behaviorally you can give them a lot of self help you know do this body language thing project your voice stand you know you could do yeah you could do things like that uh some for some people it works yeah sure you're like oh, okay this is the right way to be oh that's the way to do it i had no idea and then they you know it depends what you you know different people have different blueprints and what they resonate with but there's not you're right there's not enough of that that connection um and and there really needs to be more of that so yeah and, and the, the problem is I'm sorry, I was going to say the problem is the programmatic becomes the be all and end all yeah. too much in our culture. And and that's got to end. And we're going to head right down the, the tubes. Yeah. And I was thinking, existentially speaking, I mean, if we're thinking about, again, the unconscious in that kind of context, you would see that if the person's trying to problem solve outside of, let's say, you know, the particular context of the other person asking for advice, or if you're coming to a therapist or a psychiatrist, a lot of that is fundamentally based on the fear of being out of control. And that kind of harkens back to our mortality and our helplessness. So like, let's say if somebody were to come to me for, I don't know, they would just say something like, hey, I just, you know, need somebody to listen to, or for me to, to be heard. Uh, you know, if I were to, let's say, kind of impose myself on them, in some sort of way that would indicate my sort of learn not even learned i would say pretty much fundamental helplessness that i want to feel as though that i am somebody to this person that i am important that i have power that i have control in my world that i even have control in their world and i think a lot of times when we give advice especially when people don't take it and that kind of harkens back to our own sense of our mortality and again if we're going back and tracing it back to birth then now all of a sudden it's us re-entering the world from the womb you you, you described it really well <laughs> Um, we we want to feel heard and seen. Yeah. It's, it's fundamental. Yeah. And, and so much of that, I believe, is being skimmed, skimmed over. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's one reason why I, I call for a, a, a national coalition of psychologists or mental mm -hmm. health professionals mm -hmm. to to be available. <laughs> Uh, you know, especially in underserved communities, marginalized communities. Yeah. And for, for longer term in-depth relationships. Yeah. yeah. So what's the progress on that project, if any? Well, I proposed it as a presidential candidate for mm -hmm. uh, the American Psychological Association. And I think a number of people resonated with it, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that we're, we're ready to embrace something like that yet. I do think that the incoming president, 
uh, uh, Tama is her first name, uh, is is concerned about that, and she's going to try to to enhance the the availability of uh, psychotherapy and psychotherapists uh, in in on under underappreciated, underserved communities, especially mm -hmm. communities of color. So that's that's hopeful. That's a hopeful direction. I, I mean, we we need a whole mind shift, a cultural shift that that embraces something like that, like we embraced, uh, you know, the uh, the Works Progress Administration during the, the Roosevelt years, uh, where where we funded, you know, great art projects throughout the country, mm -hmm. or the Peace Corps. On the level of the Peace Corps, we, we need to really prioritize uh, well-being to that degree, that we, we put some powerful money behind it, like we put powerful money behind so many things that uh, may be leading in the opposite direction. <laughs> like you know, the military. I'm not saying we don't need some of these things at times sure. for defense, et cetera, but, but also uh, subsidizing the, uh, the wealthiest in the country. Uh, I think we, we need to realize that we are so much more interconnected and the whole thing's going to come down if, if, if we don't make uh, well-being much more of a priority. Absolutely. And one thing I want to, I'm just very curious about is um, that idea, right, for establishing a coalition of, of mental health professionals, right? So um, it's in, that idea is very, very interesting to me. Um, just in, in your mind, uh, how, how would it uh, work exactly? Because I think this is a very, very interesting idea. And uh, to at least um, uh, talk about it, right? Um, it could do wonders, right? You never know, it could become like a sort of a meme, you know, and then maybe actually actualize. Um, um, is it that they would sort of be in positions of, of uh, power and then sort of mediate uh p political issues or or it's not exactly like that like w what what sort of uh what did you exactly have in mind that they would uh do yeah. well I, I had in mind that that we could use it as a rallying point within our profession to uh to energize uh, the the wealth of mental health expertise that we have throughout the profession, to offer their services, maybe even once or twice a week on a voluntary basis to people who can't generally afford those services. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's at the level of individual psychotherapy, and I, I am talking about more, I, I call it emotionally restorative relationships. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the, the focus. And by that, I mean offering relationships where people feel feel seen and heard and that get at, at the root of their problem. Mm -hmm. So uh, that we can bring that, that kind of substantive relationship from 
to the clinical setting, uh, to developmental settings, to uh, organizational settings, uh, governmental deliberative settings, mm. prisons, um, the military, perhaps. I mean, you know, wherever such such services are needed, and they're needed in so many places, and also certainly to community settings where there's a great deal of political or cultural divisiveness. Mm. And so one of the, the ways that I suggested facilitating that was, was uh, bringing highly structured, highly supportive structured dialogues uh, to people who are ostensibly on very different sides of a political or cultural issue. Uh, these these humanizing dialogues that Braver Angels is promoting and that I've mm -hmm. been promoting with experiential democracy dialogue, mm -hmm. and uh, I, th I think there there are there's so many ways that we could bring our expertise. We have so much expertise to do this. This is what we're trained for. Can we devote a part of our week, even a small fragment, if we did that in mass? What would that look like culturally? Yeah. And beyond that actively, aggressively seek funding from the government, from private sources that resonate with the idea of a, of a national core, you know, of, of psychologists or mental health workers to go out into the country and, and offer services. I mean, what funding agencies might offer that? Uh, maybe something like Templeton, you know, some of these more forward-looking funding agencies. And, and even parts of the government may, may offer that. HHS, Health and Human Services, uh, or or the NIMH, National mm -hmm. Institute of Health. Uh, yeah, it would become a focus that, that hopefully would, would mobilize uh, both funding from private and gov governmental sectors and uh, individual volunteerism. Yeah, and I also awesome. love the yeah, and I also love the practical individual element of your book. So as we start wrapping up, I want to read some of these suggestions that you have because I think that they're great. So Kurt wrote, following our practical steps, readers can take to enhance their experience of awe toward life. And I mean, if you guys want, you can obviously check out our first episode with Kurt, which we we where we completely uh, I would say as thoroughly as possible we covered the awesome. concept of awe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Kirk writes, uh, these steps are drawn from my own and others' paths over many years of grappling with life enhancing anxiety. So these are the steps. So take time to reflect, be present, develop a capacity to slow down, develop a capacity to savor the moment or seize it, <laughs> focus on what one loves, practice seeing the big picture, cultivate openness to the mystery of life, including wonder and surprise, cultivate an appreciation for the fact of life, foster an appreciation of pain as sometime, as, as sometime teacher, nurture an appreciation of balance, e.g. between fragility and boldness, See contemplative time alone, see contemplative time in nature, pursue contemplative time with close others, travel, experience in-depth therapy or meditation, find an awe-based mentor, cultivate an ability to trust the evolving nature of conflict, e.g. this too shall pass, cultivate an ability to trust the evolving nature of life, nurture an ability to give oneself over discerningly to the unknowable, and nurture an ability to trust the ultimately unknowable. So these are phenomenal. And I would say they're definitely different from, you know, the kind of usual escape from life that we do as far as like uh, binging on television and on our phone. So, all right, Alan, as we wrap up, final questions for Kurt. 
Yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and, and of course, buy the book, uh, where could we do that? So you can do that at University Professors Press. That's the publisher of the book. And they publish beautiful existential humanistic works, which I'm very appreciative of. Uh, or uh, Amazon uh, offers the book uh, in Kindle version, as well as paperback and hardback. Um, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I think the, the main online uh, you know, depositories or repositories will, will offer offer the book. Yeah. And Kirk, where can we find you on social media? Well, you, you can go to my website, kirkjschneider.com. I've got everything <laughs> <laughs> virtually. <laughs> I got you. There. I've got a lot on there. Um, let's see. I, I have a lot of uh, podcasts on uh, YouTube, mm -hmm. you know, not to uh, at all <laughs> over the three times I've been with you, you both. You, you oh, of course. Really, yeah. I deeply appreciate our, our connection. We're talking about connection here. Uh, but yes, there are a lot of offerings uh, on YouTube under under my name. And uh, um, uh, occasionally I'm on Twitter, Facebook. Mm -hmm. Best place is email, from what I know. <laughs> yeah, Kirk, thank, thank, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Kirk. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. You too. All right. That was awesome. All right. So, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast. We're on Facebook, Twitter, at podcast. thank you thank you so much uh, everyone for watching like subscribe hit the bell, hit the bell on, on youtube, YouTube and see you next time